where we're picking up today is right after Jesus was in the wilderness being tempted by the devil. Jimmy gave a great word on that last Sunday. So verse 14 tells us that Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. The Spirit is very prevalent in this book. Luke starts almost every section with Jesus being filled with the Spirit or the power of the Spirit upon him. We know from the text that news about Jesus is getting around. He's teaching in their synagogue, and they're praising him. He went to Nazareth, where he grew up, and on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. So this is a familiar thing, to go into the synagogue to be a part of things. He stood up, and he read these verses from Isaiah. I'm going to read from the NRSV this time. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor, He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he sits down and lets them know that today this scripture is fulfilled in their presence. Those in attendance were in awe of what Jesus had said. They're all questioning, isn't this Joseph's son? Now, at this point in his time in the synagogue, I'm starting to think that it's you know, very religious, very put together men, looking around, doing the head tilt, kind of impressed but kind of confused, like who does he think he is? But this is sort of cool and just what just happened here is, is, is the question going on in their mind. The thing is, Jesus isn't done yet. He continues. He quotes a proverb, physician, heal yourself acknowledging that what he did in Capernaum, which consisted of driving out an impure spirit, forgiving a paralytic, and healing his body, was what is now desired from him in his hometown. But Jesus didn't operate like that. Instead, he reminds them of what happened in Scripture. He gives two examples. The first example from 1 Kings 17. Elijah announces a drought. There will not be dew or rain for the next few years. After being fed by ravens for a time, the the brook dries up because of the drought, and he is instructed to go to Zarephath. There a widow would supply him with food. The widow who the Lord told him to visit is actually preparing one more meal before her and her her son get ready to die. However, Elijah says to her, make me bread and make your family bread. And he told her the Lord said the the flour and oil would not... run dry until the Lord sends rain. She did listen to Elijah and prepared his food as well as for her family, and the oil and the flour never ran out. Sometime later in the same household, the widow's son became ill and grows worse and worse and eventually stops breathing. Of course, his mother is grieved and questioned if this man of God has something against her. Elijah takes the boy. He questions the Lord then prays to the Lord for the boy's life to return, and it does, and he lives. This is who God sent Elijah to, not the the widows in Israel, but a widow, a marginalized woman in Zarephath, who showed hospitality to Elijah with the little she had and also trusted that God would provide for her and her family. The other example Jesus references in the synagogue is found in 2 Kings 5, Naaman, commander of the king of Aram, was known as a great man, highly regarded, 
valiant soldier who also had leprosy. And it was a young Israelite girl who was captured who now served Naaman's wife, who told him of a prophet in Samaria who could heal him of his leprosy. With much communication between masters and kings and Elisha, Naaman does eventually agree to the process of healing. Now I say does eventually agree because Elisha had told him what to do. You go to the Jordan, you, you, know, you get in this many times, and he was like, can't you just you know, talk to God and you know, do something better, more, probably more valiant? <laughs> and he's like, no, no, this is how you will be healed. So eventually he agreed to this process. And he is cured of his leprosy. Naaman the Syrian was healed, a foreigner, not anyone else in Israel who had leprosy. These examples were not received well in the synagogue. Actually, they were furious when they heard this, as we read. They went from praising Jesus after he's read and graciously, yes, the word gracious is used in there, commented on the text to, as a group, driving him out of town, taking him to the brow of the hill on which the town is built in order to throw him off the cliff. Because of what he said, the examples he gave, the stories from scripture that he referred to, they were planning to kill him. No, maybe we should consider his words, think about it, mull over them. No, he's right, this is in scripture. They went straight to, let's throw him off a cliff. That was some serious mob action. I have no idea how he did it other than he is Jesus, but he did walk through the crowd and went on his way. And obviously we know it wasn't his time to be thrown off of anything. Again, there is so much happening in these 16 verses. Backing up to the Isaiah verses, Jesus the Savior, the Lamb of God, declares, this is what he came to do. Proclaim good news to the poor. Proclaim freedom for the prisoners. Recover sight for the blind. Set the oppressed free. Proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. New Testament scholar Esau McCulley gives us some more context and highlights the significance of Jesus choosing to read from the prophet Isaiah. Macaulay writes, Isaiah realized that true worship of Yahweh had implications for how one treated their neighbor. According to Isaiah, Israel's oppression of the poor in his day betrayed a practical apostasy. For Isaiah, piety must bear fruit in justice. Jesus knew that insomuch as his message of justice impinged on the lives of the powerful, he was liable to rejection and death. Jesus, Jesus not only embraced this prophetic tradition, he declared himself the climax of it by claiming that the acceptable day of the Lord, found in Isaiah, had arrived in him, found in Luke passage. Jesus saw his ministry as a part of a tradition of Israel's prophets who told the truth about unfaithfulness to God that manifested itself in the oppression of the disinherited. End quote. Dominic Gillard in his book, Subversive Witness, further explains the word oppressed here is not simply about being spiritually oppressed. The Greek word used here means to break, break in pieces, shatter, smite through. In Isaiah, the word describes God's liberating action on behalf of the poor and oppressed. The Spirit of the Lord thus was upon Jesus to deal with sin, the oppression it causes, the breaking and shattering of it, and, forces, and the forces seeking to prohibit the people of God from fulfilling our created purpose, end quote. And the last line of verse two states that Jesus was sent to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. 
Gilead continues with, the year of the Lord's favor is a reference to the year of Jubilee. Defined in Leviticus 25, 8 through 55, Jubilee had radical economic and ethical implications for society. Jubilee was a time where stolen and seized land was returned to its original inhabitants, prisoners of debt and war returned to their families, and the land was to be left untended to revitalize itself with no attempt being made to store up the products of the land. Jesus concluded his mission statement by declaring that he was the fulfillment of this text. So in this Luke 4 text, we read the words of Isaiah. We're also given the examples of the widow from Zarephath and Naaman the Syrian, and it all funnels down to one message, that this is whom Christ is coming to set free, whom Christ is showing expansive grace to, whom Christ is coming to seek and to save, whom Christ is coming to redeem, whom God is showing economic justice to, these people, all of us, really. The message is for all. Jesus, is not, Jesus has not come to give judgment, but freedom, and it is not limited to Israel. Can you imagine this? Jesus speaking these radical words in a synagogue to people who are one minute shaking their heads in agreement at his words, and then shaking their heads the other way, saying, no, it's time to die. It's, you've gone too far. You've gone to the others. The message he brought upset it all. Their understanding of scripture and its fulfillment. Jesus reset it. We see this throughout scripture, the upside down kingdom. Other examples from scripture, Matthew 20. Parable of the workers in a vineyard, the parable where workers are hired at different times, yet all were paid a denarius. There's grumbling among those who came to work earlier at the vineyard, and the landowner reminds them all, you agreed to work for a denarius. And the parable ends with, so the last will be first, and the first will be last. Because they're all seen, and they're all paid, and they're all a part of uh, the grace and the, the good fortune of the landowner. Luke 19, the story of Zacchaeus, Jesus breaking bread with a chief tax collector. Verse 7 sums up the feelings of the people. All the people saw this and began to mutter, he has gone to be the guest of a sinner. You just imagine folks stand off to the side just gossiping as Jesus and little Zacchaeus are walking by. <laughs> yes, and we know the, how the story goes. Zacchaeus stood up and said, look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. And Jesus' word to him, today salvation has come to this house, because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. How wonderful is that? Jesus could have let Zacchaeus hang out in that tree all day and see him as an enemy of the people. However, Jesus sees him, and he loves him. When I read the story of Zacchaeus this time, I got the sense that Zacchaeus was so ready to know Jesus. You know those people that are just like, they're just right there, and you're just like, they just need one more little watering, one more person to ask a question, one more person just to push a little bit. I mean, that man responded to Jesus fast. Jesus said, get down, I'm going to your house. And Zacchaeus said, yep, and here's what I'm willing to do. So you get that the spirit is probably already well, maybe not the spirit, but <laughs> you get that, you know, he's already being worked on. 
He was ready for a radical and transformative change. Jesus called his name, Zacchaeus responded. Another example of this idea of resetting and the upside down kingdom, Jesus brings, um, brings up is from John 8, the woman caught in adultery. So reading from John 8. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. Side note, has anybody ever wondered what he was writing? I'm always a little bit curious, like, what are you, <laughs> what are you writing over there? When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, let any of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. It's one of my favorite lines in the Bible. It's like, okay, y'all, if you're without sin, go ahead. Go, go for it. At this time, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left, with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. That's so amazing. I don't know where the man is. It takes two to make adultery happen. But that's a topic for another day. <laughs> we won't go there. <laughs> uh, yet Jesus is here, present, loving, and offering a new life to this woman. We read this over and over again. Jesus flipped the script, literally flipping a table at one point. He's going to the margins. He's going to the outcasts, and he's offering new life to all. As I was writing this, I thought, thank you, Jesus. He made it possible for all of us not just to be saved from death and separation from him, but to be in relationship with him and join him in the work of loving and serving others. He's the fulfillment, but we get to be a part of that. Considering this text and what Jesus has come to fulfill and that we are invited into his work, what does it look like for us to walk in these truths? to serve a God that has made his love and grace available to all, to all. It is not limited. To give you a personal example, before I give you a scriptural example, the personal example is a work in progress in my life, or process, progress, both. <laughs> it's very fresh. Some of you may even think, too soon, Pastor Tiana. Like, this is, this is very fresh, probably for all of us. But it keeps coming to mind as as I have worked on this sermon, so I'm not getting away from it. But I'm still, is Debbie here? I thought I heard Debbie Baumgartner. <laughs> well, she is here. She knows that I'm still working this one out because we were talking about it. Um, two years ago last fall, my friend Debbie and I went to a lecture at North Park Seminary where I am a student. Reverend Dr. Frank Thomas, a well-known, well-liked black pastor and theologian, was the guest speaker. I believe it was at least the second time that he gave this particular sermon. And he had given it earlier that year, so that'd be earlier 2019. I couldn't remember all the details of the sermon, but I did remember that I was bothered by it. 
So I went back and watched his earlier uh, version of the sermon yesterday. He began by talking about a book he had written called How to Preach a Dangerous Sermon. And when writing a book like that, he had to be willing to give a dangerous sermon, or more than one. And this day, and probably when he was at North Park, but again, I think I kind of in the end sort of blocked it out. (laughs) He was aware of the fact that those in attendance may be upset at what he was about to preach on. Okay, and that always makes me a little nervous when somebody starts off a sermon like that, like, y'all may not like this. (laughs) This particular sermon was titled Cain and Abel. Dr. Thomas then began to talk about police brutality in America and then settled on Jason Van Dyke who had been sentenced earlier uh, around that same time, I believe in 2019. He addressed so many realities in this sermon, even his own fear of being a black man in America, the grief at young, young black men consistently being killed, and he addressed the system, the system that we we all are in, and the systems within the systems that are a mess and need reworking. He was very real about the pain and very real about um, the reality of just the brokenness. The problems with the way those in authorities had handled the situation was also something that he talked about. He spoke of the complexities of murder, which was interesting. He told of Van Dyke's family wanting leniency and grace and the McDonald's being in pain and wanting justice. There are a lot more details to his sermon, but I'm going to not give you, you know, re-give somebody else's sermon. (laughs) It is on YouTube. Suffice it to say, he gave a dangerous sermon. And it was dangerous because he, he, to me, like, dared speak about grace for this man that had killed this teenager. But also saying it is is so complex and so difficult and we got to continue to walk. So, um... So I was sitting there shocked and struggling. So I was like, where are you going? <laughs> I'm sitting in this chapel like, where are you going, dude? Where are you going? And it was all so fresh. It was 2019, so everything was very fresh. So my hand went up because I can't help myself. I'm that person that's like, wait, 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 what, what, you know? And when it was question time, and my question to him was that working out of why should everybody receive grace? Why should this man receive leniency? Why, you know, his family's grieving, whatever. I, I just was in it and struggling and didn't know why he was preaching this. And I was probably wondering why as a black man he was giving this this message, but yet I don't know if anybody else really could give this message. So Van Dyke, to me, didn't deserve the mercy because he didn't give Laquan McDonald mercy, so that was the struggle. This pastor responded in my question, to my question in love. He was, he was very, very gracious. He's a lovely person. He acknowledged the difficulty of what he was saying, and he acknowledged scripture. And he wasn't saying that extending grace was easy in this situation. Somehow he brought it back to God, who is good, and what Jesus offered. After the lecture, of course, I had to go up to him <laughs> and talk some more because I was like, wow, I'm still in it, and where are you going with all this? And he was such an encouragement. He even called me sister and was like, I know this is hard, but you have to stay in it. You have to wrestle with it, and you have to bring Jesus into it because this is the same Jesus who came for everyone. (laughs) As I watched it again yesterday, Dr. Thomas wasn't saying what happened was okay. He said the Cain and Abel text is a hard one. Abel is murdered. It's over. 
Cain goes on to have, he's protected, he has a family, and he's thriving, ultimately. Yet God will make, he said, this is one thing Dr. Thomas said, yet God will make Abel whole. God will take care of every victim. And we must be a part of that healing and wholeness. And helping wrongs, right wrongs by being a part of that change. So as Dr. Thomas says, everyone can get home safe. Everyone. And it still is a hard example. We know Van Dyke will be released soon. Yet Jesus gives what we need to walk in his grace and love for others. Not because of your strength, not because of my strength, but because he is good and he is the fulfillment of scripture. The message of, the message of salvation, redemption, grace, freedom, it is for all of us. What does he say? I don't have this written down, but what does he say to those that believe in his name? This message is for everyone. And I want to leave you with his words from Matthew 25. One of many examples, as we've already said, in this upside-down kingdom that we can choose today to live into. These are the words of those on his right. This is my right. (laughs) Come you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance. The kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. We get to be a part of this. He is the fulfillment. We get to be a part. We have to say yes, though, right? (laughs) We have to be be willing to walk in these difficult situations where at times maybe we don't think somebody needs grace or leniency, but that's a part of it too, right? That he's walking with us in that.